Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. My pronoun is she, and I wish you thrilling stunts and minor injuries. Delicious meals and harmless poisons. I'm Daniel Dresner, and my pronoun is he. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we talk about science fiction through the lens of international relations, political science, and gender theory, really. Mm-hmm. I think so. Capitalism. Don't forget capitalism. Capitalism. Uh, through yeah. the lens of capital, well, everything is discussed through the lens of capitalism, Dan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, today we're actually talking about Charlie Jane Anders' Victory is Greater Than Death. But I want to tell you what's coming up, dear listener. Buckaroo Banzai, A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which is a great series. If you haven't jumped on that, please, folks, jump on that, and, and you'll enjoy us talking about it, I think. And we're going to do for... <laughs> Hot sci-fi summer, <laughs> Reign of Fire. Yes. Which is, in fact, the Matthew McConaughey, Christian Bale vehicle about dragons taking over the earth. <laughs> oh, I also want to add that in addition to doing this episode on Victory is Greater Than Death, we are interviewing Charlie mm-hmm. Jean Anders. That'll be a bonus episode. Have we decided we're going to give it to everyone? I think we're going to give it to everyone. I think we should give this to everyone. We're going to put it in the regular feed. We're going to give it to everyone. And when we say everyone, Dan, what does that distinguish from? It distinguishes the patrons from the non-patrons. And while we like everyone listening to this podcast, of course, we are particularly look upon with favor and give interesting greetings involving pudding (laughs) uh, to our patrons. And we are furthermore more than halfway to our goal of uh, 250 patrons because when we hit that mark, we will do another special patrons-only episode in which the topic is chosen by all y'all patrons. And there are other reasons to become a patron. I think the number one reason is our Discord channel, Mm -hmm. which is a very fun community that is lots of laughs. fun, lively, likes to pick on me. A lot of the laughs are at Dan's expense because he doesn't play. So we just talk about him a lot. I'm reviving. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna start lurking. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna like occasionally pop up and just freak everyone out. And also, uh, you get merch. You get episodes early, and you get the sense, you know, just the pleasant sense of helping people who are doing this basically out of love. I, and it might give you a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Yes. And you can become a patron at Patreon.com/slash Space the Nation. So why are we doing uh, Victories Greater Than Death? Well, the most obvious reason is that it's Hot Sci-Fi Summer, as we have said, and we're therefore very excited about Hot Sci-Fi Summer. We got a little too excited, which meant that we forgot that June was Pride Month. And this book, Victories Greater Than Death, it is a queer YA novel, I think would be the, the accurate way to describe it. So we did miss it in June, but thought it was clearly relevant for July. I would say queer inclusive fiction is always relevant, Number one. Number two, I just found out that Austin is having its Pride Parade in August, Mm -hmm. which seems, I don't know, did they wait for the hottest part of the year? I was going to (laughs) say, I I, I don't mean a stereotype here, but I'm wondering if, do do queer outfits and like Austin in August mix terribly well? I I don't mean to be critical. Well, the kinds of stuff you see at Pride when people are, you know, proclaiming love for themselves and love for Uh, the skin they're in definitely will be helpful. It's a lot of skin. For Austin in August. So I feel like we're right on time with this. I'm going to give just a little bit of background. Charlie Jane Anders is an out trans woman, which I normally would not necessarily comment upon, but I think it's good for context here. And because she's actually one of the people that's really pushing for inclusivity in YA fiction, which has been a big discussion over the past few years, as it has been everywhere. 
And I would point out that she's also been a sort of longstanding contributor to sci-fi culture. She was one of the co-creators of the really awesome io9 website. Yes. Along with her partner, Annalie Newitz, who I know from the zombie stuff because Annalie wrote a great book about that. Who is my co-editor at the Gramsci pop culture magazine. That's Which subjects. is cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I know Annalie. I mean, we haven't really talked, but it's funny to see her name pop up. Yeah. I looked at some interviews with Charlie Jane and... and she had some interesting inspirations. An obvious one was the hero's journey, right? Like the mm. kind of typical YA trope where you, you're plucked out of obscurity to become a hero, right? Mm-hmm. Her twist on it is, is what we'll talk about, which is how hard it is to become a hero and whether it's better to be a hero or be thought of as a hero. Like what are mm. you really aiming for? And then I think the other thing is, uh, maybe I'll just read this directly. Uh, I think adults get a little too nervous anytime there's politics, queerness, or anything challenging. She's talking about in books, right, in novels, yeah. because they're not used to that stuff. So you have to hold their hand a little bit and be like, okay, I'm going to get you through this. There's going to have to be some intense stuff, but I'm going to keep it safe. It's all good. You have to coach them through it. Whereas from talking to a lot of teens who read YA and just from being around teens, I know they grew up on the internet. They grew up being exposed to a lot of politics, queerness, and really intense stuff. They're ready for it. I was thinking about this in the last couple of days about the sort of, I mean, I tend to agree with that. And I also think this is a generational thing. I was just talking to someone before about how, and Anna, I don't know if this is true for you, but like back in the early 90s, I remember having more than one dinner with someone where the reason for the dinner was a coming out announcement. And that was a formal thing back in the day. Like, you know, like a friend would like take you out to like explain what was going on. Whereas we're now living in a world where frankly, people do this in middle school very often or in high school. I think for younger generations, this is, you're right, more, there is more radical. Or it's, or it's kind of come full circle too, which is that it's mm-hmm. not a special announcement. Right. That's my, my, yes, yeah, my point. Yeah. It's like, it's like, just, yeah. I mean, they might not do it until their 20s. They might not make that announcement until their 20s. But even if they do, it's like, okay, fine. Yeah, Yeah. everyone's like, all right, cool. Like, I'm glad you you figured that out for yourself. You know, I support you in whatever you want to do. And it's sort of what I think of, and I think of is sometimes called like Tumblr culture, where Hmm. there's this incredible amount of vulnerability Mm -hmm. and sharing about stuff that's changing. Right. That's the other thing I think that kids today... are more accepting of, which is the fluidity of all these identities. Oh, God, yes, yes. Like, we're, we adults are more like, okay, you said you're gay. <laughs> so you be gay. And there, I have a really strict definition of what gay is. Right. Whereas, like, these kids, I love that they use the word queer. Mm-hmm. And I love that for them, there's a lot of different definitions about how you should be, which is a theme in this novel. <laughs> Definitely the case, yes. And we're going to interview Charlie Jane, like I said. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I want to ask her about is this sort of tick in the book where every single character introduces (laughs) themselves with their pronouns, even the villains. Yes. Like, it's it's actually, and I think, so I think it's supposed to be funny. I think there's supposed to be some humor there. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if it lands differently for kids. It's interesting. So I, I actually think it, it also landed differently as the book went along. Yes, like the first yes. time I heard it, the first time I heard it, I did not laugh. Actually, I thought it was. I I've said this. Right. I'll say this a little later. I thought it was actually really momentous. And then as it goes on, and then particularly when the villains do it, I'm like, uh, this is now amusing to me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it gets funnier. It's like repeat until funny. Right. And yeah. I also think there's something to the idea of you get people in the door through humor. Right. You know. 
like if you can kind of show people something a little bit ridiculous, but also get them comfortable at the same time. And that's the thing about this. Not this book is very is actually quite funny. The yes. YA stuff in particular is very funny. Yes. Literally, the phrase "space butt" is used, and I laughed multiple <laughs> times reading that. And I expect us to use that phrase regularly from here it, on out. It could come up. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We should probably get to the story. We should. So let's get to Act One: One Girl to Save the Universe. Meet Tina Maines, just an ordinary teenage girl who has a best friend, Rachel, and Rachel was bullied at school. Okay, I lied. Tina is not ordinary, and she's not exactly human either. Rather, she is a clone of one Thao Argentian. Thao was a Makvarian captain in the Royal Fleet uh, for an interstellar state called the Firmament. She died fighting a group rather disingenuously (laughs) called the Compassion. Or Tina is mostly a clone mixed with the DNA of her Earth mom, who is fully aware of Tina's identity. Uh, She was born and raised on Earth to hide her from the compassion and its brutal leader, Morant. There is a beacon inside of her that will activate once she's ready to leave, at which point the royal fleet will come and rescue her. Tina is having nightmares about Morant, stalking and killing her. Rachel urges her to activate the beacon, and after a few false starts, she succeeds. The problem is, is that both the compassion and the firmament can detect the beacon. Rachel and Tina avoid Morant's cronies and are whooshed away to the HMSS Indomitable via an orbital funnel. Rachel needs to come as well because she was apparently exposed to the radiation from Tina's beacon and the Compassion could track her. They learn once they are aboard the Indomitable that the Firmament is losing its war against the Compassion and that the Indomitable is pretty banged up. Once on the ship, their doctor removes the neural blockers that should free Argentian's memories and personality. As it turns out, however, the process reveals that the cloning was only partially successful. Tina does not recover any of Argentian's memories, but she does recover all of the sort of useful general knowledge that Argentian possessed. Or, as Tina puts it later, she is space Wikipedia. (laughs) Anna, there's a lot to unpack here, but perhaps the most obvious thing is that the first friendly alien we see says, My name is Yato the Mantha, and my pronoun is they. And honestly, I agree with you that it it did make me laugh later in the novel. But the first time I heard it, it actually made me think of the Terminator. When you hear that line, come with me if you want to live. And I don't know why, but I was curious about your thoughts about this. I wonder if it's because using one's pronoun or, or introducing oneself with one's pronoun these days is literally a little bit of virtue signaling. I don't know why that term has become bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What you are doing when you have your pronouns in your bio or you you introduce yourself to totally new people that way is you are acknowledging that we live in a universe where gender is constructed and there's a spectrum of identities and you can't be sure of what to call someone and it's just polite to know what to call them. And especially in the context of fucking aliens. Yes. <laughs> or non-fucking aliens. Frankly. Right. Well, you know, yes. Yeah. Aliens. Celibate yeah, yeah. aliens. Yes. Yes. Um, but, but some of these aliens are fuckable. And yeah. Yeah. Apparently so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's not a lot about that, but there is enough that it, it's funny to just have that be acknowledged, which yes. doesn't always get acknowledged in, in, when you meet aliens uh, in, and I in do novels. Think- there's no denying that that is one of the ways in which this is a queer YA novel works really well, is that by the moment you introduce the aliens, even adults like me would say, yeah, of course there's going to be gender fluidity or, or multiple genders among aliens. They're aliens, for God's sakes. That's, that's how it should or, work. Or, yes. or genders we don't even know about, which comes right, up exactly. as well. Yes, yes. And I thought it's especially important, right? Because so, so Yato, who's a main character in the book, <laughs> I believe is tiger-striped with a visible vertebrae that like pokes out of his skin with like 
jewels on it or something. Yeah, he's really gorgeous. Apparently. You, he, yes. they, they are really. They gorgeous. were. I'm sorry, they were gorgeous. And furthermore, and, they used to be an actor, right? Yes. Like, yes. 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 That's right. And I, I'm going to say one more sort of on a almost on a personal note about this, which is I appreciated all the pronoun stuff because I'm an oldie <laughs> and I'm still getting used to it. You know? Oh, same. Yes. And it's a kind of very safe practice for me. Like even having this discussion, I am I'm, I'm glad to have a space where I can practice using pronouns that don't come naturally to me. And I'm going mm-hmm. to pass on a helpful hint that a queer friend gave to me. Ooh, OK. They. They said that they now use they for their dog <laughs> and that, that is a good way to get into the practice it is yeah. and that's it that's it yeah it's like who are you going to offend it might be true <laughs> and it's a it's a good way to get out of like i think writers like us especially have trouble with with the plural pronoun we do. I mean, it, I have to say, what honestly, I will say as a writer, one of the issues that always bugs me is the grammar aspect of it. Yeah. And I know it's just, you know, how we're drilled to, to write and so forth. And that that's absolutely part of it. Yeah. So yeah. you just get used to it if you just make, that's, that's make one of your animals a day. Hot. All right. Let's, pro tip there we for go. y'all. <laughs> let's move on to act two, meet the earthlings. So Rachel decides to stay on the Indomitable and work in sickbay, and after being a total space butt, Tina is okay with it. Rachel also notices there's only a skeleton crew on board and has the bright idea of trying to recruit elite Earth nerds to come join the crew and fight the Compassion. Tina is not wildly crazy about this idea, but relents after Rachel promises to craft a warning message to the recruiting challenge. Naturally, those who show up on the ship from Earth are jazzed about the challenge and shockingly did not read the warning, treating it much like terms of service. So there's Domini from Mumbai, Kezia from Cambridge. There are others too, but the Indomitable needs to move away from orbit to escape fire from the Compassion ship, and that threatens their arrival. Tina violates orders and, in a daring maneuver, rescues two other Earthlings, uh, Yiwei from Shanghai and Elza from Sao Paulo. They then leave the solar system to avoid someone from Earth firing a nuke at them. I really wanted to know, by the way, Anna, who <laughs> fired a nuke at them. That's left totally unsaid, and I'm going to ask Charlie who that was. For the and I, I assume it gets taken care of at some future book. This is part of a, a trilogy. Yes, yes, that's fair. And I uh, believe it is Kazaya who says he's going to return to Earth as an ambassador. So that is correct, yes, because I is the one who winds we up might find to be out. the investor. That would be a good point. So the Indomitable gets repairs and decides to look for something called the Talgan Stone, which Tina overheard some compassion lackeys talking about uh, when they were trying to find her. The Earthlings train to be a part of the crew. Tina and Elza seem to like each other. But then Tina is thrown for a loop when trying to learn more about Argentian. Here's a log entry in which Argentian expressly states that she does not want to be cloned. It is safe to say that this gives Tina some self-esteem issues. She also gets additional self-esteem issues when at one point her captain says that the clone was done poorly. He says that for tactical reasons, but nonetheless, it sort of messes with her head. Anna, there's a lot of world building in this section, and I have to confess that a lot of it kind of felt like Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go to Me, which is to say I liked it, but it also felt kind of silly. My favorite part of this easily was Rachel withdrawing to her quarters because she was totally burned out socially. I would totally do that if I was in her situation. Uh, What about you, Anna? Those are sort of two points that I'll take in order. Mm -hmm. I I also felt the Seussian quality (laughs) of the book, but I decided to enjoy it. You know, people give Dr. Seuss books to other adults. And it's in part because those books are fun. 
They are. Know? No, no, I didn't. Yeah, it, it's yes. That is, it, there's yeah. kind of a joy to the simplicity of mm-hmm. those books sometimes. And also and the imagination. Yes, also, and the imagination. Yeah. And I, I think that that comes through in this mm-hmm. book. And then as far as Rachel goes, <laughs> I've actually been reading about something called the highly sensitive person, <laughs> which is a thing. It's it? it's a thing that psychologists note. It's not like an official diagnosis, but it's a thing you can measure. And I glommed onto this because one of the things that happened when I checked into rehab, they asked me, literally asked me if tags on clothes bothered me. Really? And and itchy and itchy things. And I was like, because the they bother the fuck out of me. Yeah. Well, they who the fu- yeah who doesn't get who, bothered? Who by doesn't those get things, bothered by those? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like some other questions I think about like crowded places and stuff. Oh, okay, and again, it's sort of like, I don't, I, I mean, I guess I've always assumed other people get bothered by this stuff too. But mm-hmm. one of the things the pandemic has done is actually shown me, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, other people might be bothered by itchy shirts, mm-hmm. but there are some people who really need other people. Yes. And it's not just like a, a Streisand lyric or whatever. It's it's <laughs> they really need that stimulation, and I am not one of those people. Interesting. And it's made me aware of some of the things about my personality that I I knew and accepted, but just didn't have like a framework for. And one hmm. of them is like, and this used to happen after I, I did a TV hit, mm-hmm. is that I shake. I don't shake beforehand, hmm. but afterwards. I feel completely drained mm-hmm. and like I have like this like I don't no one touch me feeling so the I analogy- used to drink that and honestly yeah. that's when I would go have a drink oh god wow because so it, way- it felt like I it wasn't it was high tension it was a level of like anxiety mm-hmm. and tension that I felt like a drink would unwind with all the senses yeah so the, the the analogy I've always used on this is like for me it's like I think of it as a cell phone battery that is mm-hmm. wasting down quickly, which is to say that yes, I I, I don't think I'm quite as it's it's a, it's, a it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum, and the pandemic has made me realize I do miss seeing other people, and in fact, actually crave some of that. Mm-hmm. But that said, as the pandemic has lifted around here, and as as we've begun socially interacting more, I remember that my battery will run low after a while, and I need to recharge. Yeah. And the way I recharge is by being alone and everyone leave me the fuck alone. But then and the it, difference is that I do want to engage again after that. So it, it, it's sort of like a sine wave in that sense. It's not that I hate people, although I actually have said that before. <laughs> <laughs> and when I'm in that completely drained state, yeah. the thought that I have is I never want to speak to anyone ever again. Right, right. And I the know that's, I, that's a lie I tell myself, but <laughs> it's how I feel in the moment. And today what I do is... is I meditate, honestly. Aww. It always feels a little silly, but I do. No, whatever works. Uh, and, I mean, and, you know. and then, like, the other day I had a job interview, actually. And I was. it did the same thing to me. Which You felt drained after? You I felt like drained shaky and, like, shaky yeah. afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to do any, anything else today that has to do with being with other people. That has I, anything to do with interacting to other, with other people today. I am just going to do the stuff that feels good to me and... Tomorrow I may feel different. And I did. I did feel differently the next day. I am kind of intrigued whether in the sort of post-pandemic world in which a lot of the sort of interactions that we might have required to have done face-to-face we can do online or virtually or what have you, whether it is more enabling for the Annas and Rachels of the world. Oh, this this interview was online. This interview was oh, via, okay. via Zoom. And it still... Still stressed out? Still yeah. stressed me out. 
We can talk later about why I have chosen a profession where I have really intense, deep conversations with people at least once a week. <laughs> yes, that is fascinating. Because I, I will say this. I think one of the reasons I became an academic as opposed to a journalist, because there were times where when I was in college where I was sort of teetering between the two. And what petrified me about being a journalist was the idea that I would have to cold call people. Oh. That was fucking terrifying for me. And I did not want to do it. It's interesting if I had like was 20 years younger when email was the obvious way in which that would have happened. And maybe I would have been more okay with that. I don't know. Oh, it's the worst part of it. Any story yeah. for me. Yeah. Again, we can, we can do just a whole, on the, during the AMA, I can like unload my theories about go. why I chose a profession that directly challenges, you know, something that I'm really sensitive about. But anyway, <laughs> let us move on uh, to act three, Sly and the Talgan Stone. As Tina put it, this galaxy is scary and full of ugliness, and everything's twisted out of shape by crimes that happened so long ago. Tina and the rest of her crew trace the Talgan Stone to a planet called Second Yoth. Morant and the Compassion Ships are there as well. Uh, Tina and her compatriots get there first, but Morant arrives soon after. Morant has apparently been upgrading himself to be impervious to weapons. Also, he can not only kill someone by touching them and literally like liquefying them and turning them into a little dank puddle, but when he does that, Everyone that that person knows then thinks badly of them. So it's an ironic weapon for Morant since back in the day, he and Argentian used to be friends in the royal fleet, and then his own arrogance killed his spouse named Aim. Morant wants to use the Talgan Stone to revive some old tech used by the Shapers, a race that apparently back in the day stacked the evolutionary deck in the galaxy in favor of symmetrical bipeds as opposed to other kinds of asymmetric creatures. Anyway, Morant kills some of the Indomitable's away team, but Tina and others make it back to the ship. Domini figures out that the Talgan Stone is part of a larger map. They then use that map to race to the Antarian system to discover what ancient Shaper's tech awaits them. Also, Tina and Elza finally express their true feelings for each other, which is they really, really like like each other. Like um, like. Yeah. Like like. Not just yeah. like, like like. Okay. Anna, my favorite touch in this book was actually the idea that Morant's weapon did not just kill people, but then also made it impossible to mourn them. Because if you thought of them, you then felt disgust and, and you know didn't think much of them. The more you think about that, the more insidious it sounds, don't you think? Yes. I also assume it'll get explored a little in some of the other books because it is such an intriguing idea. And, the, yeah. and, and in the book, they have questions about it, which include... Right. Is there an effective There's, radius? Right, because there, there clearly is an effective radius. Because right. later on when he uses it, some people that are far away don't feel the same thing. And I also kept wondering, what is this a metaphor for? <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't really come up with something. I'm usually pretty good at that game. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, have, I got nothing. It's just an interesting thing, perhaps. I don't know. I have a possible answer, but I, it's, uh, I don't know. You don't like it? Well, I, I wonder if it's heteronormativity, for lack of a better way of putting it. In other words, if someone, you know, comes out as queer and then dies, people who are attached to heteronormativity can't, don't know what to do with that. Oh, I, I think you're actually on the right path. Okay. Because a larger theme in the book is the mm -hmm. assumptions we make about history. Yes. And how we judge a species and beings that have lived before us. Mm -hmm. And I think it, one thing that weapon shows is it's, it's, it's somewhat arbitrary. That the way we think about the past can be wrong. 
<laughs> right. And that's something that that's a theme that recurs again and again in this book, which is, you know, that that we sort of get exposed to various forms of space history. And one of the things we discover is maybe the interpretations of that space history are actually incorrect. Yeah. And that is worth uh, bearing in mind. I just want to add that the crush feels really spot on to me. Like, some yes, of the, there are some, I think, knowing tropes in this book, like she's knowingly using YA tropes right. in kind of a different way. And, and a YA trope is the, is the crush. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but what she does with it is it's the descriptions of, of how Tina feels are, right. are adorable. Yes. So, Particularly, uh, anytime she's with Elsa and, and so yeah. forth. And there, there is another Rachel and I think Yiwei mm-hmm. also wind up developing a relationship. I also did like how the book sort of fake out in that there was another Markavian, I think, mm-hmm. who was a, was a male who I think Tina was also attracted to. Although that doesn't go anywhere, but maybe that'll go somewhere in the next book. We don't. <laughs> and I also like, I think she, what she says about him is something they say about Moran as well, which is that they're attracted to the symmetry. Yes. And yes. and it is this weird thing about humans that it is yeah. a default thing that we do like symmetry in each other. Oh yeah, and, no, this is like this has actually been scientifically yeah, proven. Like there's yeah. no there there's a lot of tests showing that people attach higher aesthetic value to people who are thought who are viewed to be symmetrical yes yeah and i just like sort of highlighting that is a kind of weird quirk of ours that maybe maybe doesn't have to be true right right exactly okay let us move to the last act a victory greater than death tina leads a small away team to a city constructed between the two stars by the shapers they discover a shaper mausoleum that contains all the non-biped species they subjugated out of existence Morant and Compassion Troops theoretically arise. subjugated out of existence. Just oh, not, that's right. Spoiler that's alert! But no, that's true. Yeah, I, yes, I think we don't that know. we can drop it in here that yeah. they make assumptions about what's going on with this alien right. technology. Right. Morant and Compassion Troops arrive soon after and outnumber Tina's plucky band. They fight Morant with guerrilla tactics, which does work for a spell. Then Morant captures Tina and her friends. Morant is about to space-touch them to inglorious death, but Tina improvises a flashbang grenade that allows them to steal a Compassion Ship and escape. The Indomitable, however, is destroyed by Compassion Ships. Tina and her friends rescue the remaining Earthlings plus a few other strays. Morant plans to sacrifice some non-bipeds called the Gratna, to activate the secret weapon. The secret weapon needs organic matter to apparently be used. Tina and the remaining royal fleet forces return to the mausoleum to fight them. The battle distracts Morant long enough for Rachel to enter the sort of gazebo at the center of the device. The machine apparently works by drawing, and Rachel is a kick-ass drawer, and so she's able to use it to wipe out the Compassion's forces. Morant is captured. The good guys win. Yay! That said, Rachel, while operating the gazebo, realizes that the Shapers are, first of all, actually called the Vite, and they have been awakened by Rachel actually using this device. Dun, dun, dun! Mm, Cut to black. Trilogy. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Anna, let's talk a little more about the YA elements of this book. There's lots of serious stuff in this book about gender identity, about gender fluidity, about sort of space colonialism, as it were, and, and sort of lots of people die. But that said, it is also mixed with incredibly goofy teen talk. And I confess I found it more endearing than I expected. What say you? Same. I was thinking a lot about this book, which is a good thing. You know, when a book sticks with you, and and this one has, Mm -hmm. uh, that's always a good thing. And I was trying to figure out, like, why I enjoyed it so much. And the metaphor I came up with is that this book feels a little bit like the novel equivalent of dream houses drawn by children, you know, Hmm. like 
where you draw a house that's a tree house with a fireman pole and an ice cream machine. Yes. And there's a there's a, a race an- car underneath the basement and like, yeah. yeah. It, right. And there's an anti-gravity yeah. machine somewhere. Well, of course. Yeah. You can need an anti-grav. Um, that and and that, that's a little bit of the universe she builds mm-hmm. is like, what if things were good? Like, what if mm-hmm. some of the basic things about life was good? You know, <laughs> like what if people did respect pronouns and gender fluidity? You know, what if people accepted each other at kind of because one thing that doesn't happen in the royal fleet is that Mm -hmm. no one judges each other. Like there's this real. And there's uh, no rank. There's 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 there's, there's minimal rank, I should say. There's a a captain and an alternate captain, which I found intriguing. I have to say, I like the idea that like it was like almost (laughs) like no, no, no. And it's not like like it's not like the alternate captain is like the number one in like start to paraphrase Star Trek, it's more like the alternate captain can overrule or block the captain if the captain does something, you know, that's butt stupid. Right. So it's as flat an organization as you can get. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And what the novel goes on to do is that there are problems in this treehouse, right? Mm-hmm. There there are problems in the dream world, but you're free to address those problems rather than have to deal with like the day to day oppression of Elza and it has a backstory that she talks about that's harrowing. Yes. You know, yes. being kicked out by her parents, having to live on the street, feeling different than everyone else. That you know. reminds me. So I, I think we say it. Or I think I said it before, but just to be clear, Elsa is also trans in as a character. And she and Tina eventually do, in fact, get it on. And I believe she is Afro-Latino also. Yes, I think that's correct. Yes. And that's another thing about the book that is becoming more normal in fiction. So it's not as noteworthy, but I'll, I'll note it anyway, mm-hmm. which is that. There's not a lot of specific talk about what color people are, but also right. you kind of get reminders that you can't assume what color people are. I, I will unless they're even, purple, I, in which I case will, you are reminded that they're purple. Let me put it this way: <laughs> I actually think, and I don't mean this as an insult, but it's interesting. I think this book flunks the reverse Bechdel test, which is I don't think there are two white men having. I don't think there's a white man who says a single thing in this book. I could be wrong about that. But like maybe in the early part. Morant is well, I don't know really Mar- white. I suppose, but he's not exactly... Like you know, ghostly white, he's described okay, fair as. fair enough, fair enough. And humanoid. Yeah, all right, human. If you want to expand it to humanoid. But you understand what I'm trying to say. I do understand, and I think more books should fail should yes. fail the reverse Bechdel test. Right. I think that will be good. Yes. No, as I said, not intended as a criticism. So, Dan, before we get any further, I actually have a question for you. Go ahead. Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this book? Don't be an interstellar cosmic super butt, Anna. You of course love there was that. Like you, <laughs> you were just looking for any excuse to use the term butt <laughs> Anytime, in conjunction with space. <laughs> I confess, I, it's not just butt. I want to say space butt so much. Like, yes, that the biggest YA element that touched me is like it turned out. Yes, I like saying the phrase space butt. You know, okay. it's just I'm, I'm comfortable with that about myself. And, <laughs> it is and a delightful phrase. It's so. a delightful phrase. And it was one of my favorite little uh, quirks in the book. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things going on. Um, one is the sort of role the technology plays in terms of determining the relative power of actors. One of the things we learn as we, as we start off is that the firmament is easily the largest actor out there and they're the most powerful, but one of the reasons the compassion is a rising power is that they have somewhat better tech. That the royal fleet's you know, sort of large, for lack of a way of putting it, space aircraft carriers are still almost indestructible. The problem is they're slow. And so as a result, the compassion ships are much faster and can get to a particular point easier. And therefore, that is one of the reasons they are starting to win the war. 
The other thing this book reminded me of is, for lack of a better way of putting it, the deep levels of racism and imperialism that influence how we think about international relations. Which is to say that an awful lot of international relations, of actual international relations, was obviously driven by both colonialism and racism. Namely, in terms of colonialism, the idea that, particularly pre-industrial revolution, but also a little bit post, states thought they could augment their power by capturing territory and by subjugating people. And it's a lot easier to engage in a resource grab when you don't think of the indigenous people as people, per se, which is what happened in a lot of the places that uh, European powers in particular uh, colonized and in, in along with, let's say, the American expansion westward. And I think for a long time, that framework screwed up the study of international relations. So international relations is at least ostensibly about the relations between states in a world of anarchy. And one of the stylized facts that frankly persists to this day in terms of a lot of thinking about international relations is that the 19th century was a peaceful one. There was no great power war after the end of the Napoleonic Wars between the Napoleonic Wars and World War One. That is normally how sort of the sort of potted history of international relations is taught. And it's also wrong in the sense of <laughs> there very was wrong. <laughs> tons of violence. There was massive amounts of violence, massive amounts of death. It's just that that was actually directed towards colonialism rather than great powers necessarily fighting each other. Can I jump in here? Yeah, please do. Because I, I don't, none of this is accidental in the book. Yeah. And I think there is a, it's not funny. It's just, mm-hmm. let's say, on the nose illustration yeah. of this when they figure out what the mystery machine does. Right. And what it does is literally turn bipeds into machinery. Right. They are not people. They are they like have cogs in them. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is what colonialism looks like. That's an excellent way of putting it on it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Two other things I think relevant from this book from international relations. The first is that, you know, being a declining hegemon is tricky. It's challenging. And the royal fleet and the firmament are clearly a declining hegemon in this book. And one of the best ways we see this is I think it's the Grotna. I could be wrong about this. There's a planet where we we go down and the royal fleet was clearly trying to build something that would help the indigenous people. And the problem was, was that then they started having to fight the compassion and they just sort of, it was this sort of half structure left, half built. And as a result, was helping no one. And indeed, I think one of the, the things that Anders does that is smart is the sort of non-bipeds get their own voice here. And their opinion toward the royal fleet is, frankly, one of justified skepticism, which is they don't, they don't, <laughs> they don't hate the royal fleet. It should be stressed there. They don't yeah. hate the firmament. They actually recognize the firmament was trying to help them. They just don't have any faith that the firmament can actually follow through on this and therefore want the means to defend themselves, which is, a, you know, I think it actually generous and capacious way of, of, of analyzing how this would go. And then finally, this is something that's sort of banal and obvious and yet is not actually talked about all that much in international relations, which is the operators of international relations, particularly when it comes to the use of force, are in fact young adults. Mm-hmm. Okay, The soldiers who fight and die are usually between the ages of 18 and 22. They are exactly the demographic for this book. And it is interesting to think about compared to other dimensions of statecraft. Diplomats are older. You know, ec- economists are older. Other sort of, you know, actors are... Other modes of statecraft generally require older, more mature leaders. When it comes to fighting wars, however, you need young adults. And it is fascinating to think about that. And also, I think one of the things I legitimately liked about the book, and this was a little more subtle, was Tina's approach to the use of violence mm-hmm. um, and the way that Anders dealt with it. So in the, in the book... 
you know, again, Tina is sort of space Wikipedia. She's sort of slowly acquiring or recalling the skills necessary to operate in the Royal Fleet. One of those is she can be a pretty kick-ass soldier. She has to kill several compassion uh, troops along the way. And she has ambivalent feelings at best about this. And at the end of the book decides that she wants to be sort of a non-violent, sort of declare non-violence and, and nonetheless serve the Royal Fleet, but she doesn't want to kill anymore, which I appreciated uh, sort of Anders dealing with in, in a in a not condemning violence kind of way, in a acknowledging that violence might actually have to be a necessary compunction to, you know, survival, but nonetheless it does things to people and it is a respectable choice to decide not to engage in violence. Yeah. If I can if I can put it that way. I liked all of that as mm-hmm. well. And I'll just point out as far as the young people or the people that actually fight the wars, it's another dehumanizing thing. Yeah. People who study history know this better than others, which is that, you know, childhood is an invention. Mm-hmm. It took a while for people to think of young people as people. It's mostly actual children because, hey, people, you know, children died a lot. So right. you didn't want to get attached to them. I so. mean, remember, in, in, you know, in, Ro- in yeah. Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, you know, Romeo is 14, Juliet's 13. That's considered marriageable age at that point in Elizabeth yeah. in England. Yeah. So it is a question of like how much agency and how much value do you give to young life? Mm-hmm. And I think it is a challenge, continuing challenge for anyone as they grow older. I, mean, I include myself uh, to mm-hmm. think of young people as like fully formed, you know. So uh, I have ambivalent feeling. Yeah, I agree with you. I have ambivalent feeling. If not fully because- formed, like they can change. Yes, but that they deserve my respect. That is absolutely you know? true. So, so, like, that's the way I would qualify. Because, like, as, yeah. as I've gotten older, one of the things I've realized is that when you are 20, you are not, in fact, fully formed. Right, right. Um, we've got to be very clear about that. That doesn't mean you lack agency or that you, right. you should not be not listened to. But, yeah, like, one of the few benefits of age is looking at younger people and thinking, oh, yeah, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, I think there has to be some humility about it. Yes, And that's right. yeah. that, you know, I work with a lot of people who are younger than me. Mm-hmm. You know, and <laughs> what I think I try to do is recognize that they do know shit that I don't know. Yeah. And part of it is sensitivity stuff, honestly. Mm-hmm. It is the young people that are on my staff um, that I work with that will point out like, Ugh, maybe you shouldn't. Uh, why don't you go retake that? <laughs> you know, that sentence kind of landed weird. Yeah. You know. Or reminding me, like, you know, you talk a lot about eating disorders in this episode, and some people that's really hard to listen to. So you might want to let them know. Like, we put content warnings on my show. I used to be so against this. It's a UFC (laughs) thing almost. Like, I was so like, you should be able to take it. We should not have to warn people that they're going to have to hear hard stuff. Right. You know, know, just that's what you come to college for is Mm -hmm. to hear difficult ideas, yada, yada, yada. When it's framed as this is a tough conversation and maybe you'll want to come back to it later, mm-hmm. I think it. I see the sense of it, you know? The way I would put it is that, and as someone who teaches in college, yeah. my goal as I've evolved on this is that I want to make my students occasionally intellectually uncomfortable, yeah. but not personally uncomfortable. And that requires some navigation. But I agree with you that I think one of the, be- the the best way to think about this is that just as we have learned, you know, over the last over time that there is value in having diversity in the workplace. One of the sources of the diversity is not just race or gender or sexual orientation. It's also age. 
And this applies to both sides, by the way, in the yeah. sense of, of, both, of both ends of the spectrum, both ends yeah. of the age spectrum. Yes, that, that I think you get benefits from both of that. But speaking of the workplace, oh. Anna, I have a question. Yes, Dan. Anna, did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this book? Thank you for asking, Dan. <laughs> the market pretty much disappears in this book after they get into space. And I yeah. think that's one of the utopian touches in the dream house that the kid draws, in addition to the anti-gravity machine and the race cars and <laughs> swimming pool filled with cotton candy, there's no capitalism. At least that would be my dream house. Yeah. The Royal Fleet appears to be very Gene Roddenberryan in the fact that it has no money, apparently, in mm-hmm. addition to not having rank. No one seems to have anything of, of a job, and there appears to be no class. It's more Roddenberryan than Roddenberry. It is. It is. It out Roddenberry's Roddenberry. Yeah. Roddenberry's just a fun name to say. <laughs> I wanted to comment on the capitalism around this book, on this book as a commodity in the world. Right. I have hung around libertarians on and off in my life, which <laughs> I, I recommend. Like, Anna, I've been a libertarian. It's oh, like that's right. That's right. Life, so yes, <laughs> yes. They're a fun bunch. You learn stuff. Yeah. Because they... They, they throw I, good parties. There's no doubt. They throw this. good parties and yeah. they often think about the world in a very different way right. than either liberals or conservatives. Like... Mm-hmm. And one argument that I once heard mm-hmm. was that there shouldn't be laws against segregation right? because the market will take care of it. Right, because segregation is economically inefficient. Right. Racism yeah. is economically inefficient. You don't mm-hmm. need to tell people that they need to serve, you know, gay people and straight people and black people and white people because the smart businessman mm-hmm. or businesswoman mm-hmm. will realize that they get more money if they serve a bigger clientele and da 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 da, da. Now, yeah. there are obvious problems with that in the real world. Yes. <laughs> May I introduce you to history? Right. <laughs> Although the libertarian will then say, well, we never had a perfect market, to, you know, whatever. Like, I, I think even sophisticated libertarians will acknowledge, oh, right, rent-seeking is a thing and this is an issue. But, but yes, this is a problem in the, yeah. in the logic. But there is... The logic of it does exist in our world. Right. It is still a thing. It might not right. be as powerful as libertarians think, but it is a thing. And we see it a lot these days mm-hmm. with sometimes they call it greenwashing, uh, mm. rainbow washing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a corporation will go out of its way to put rainbows up during Pride Month to like tout its you know green initiatives. And then see its customer base maybe expand. Like you put gay people in your ads. Mm -hmm. Gay people see that and develop an allegiance to your product. Also, you normalize seeing gay people. Society starts to change a little bit. That is something that happens. And I don't think we would be where we are today, especially on marriage equality, Mm -hmm. without the market pushing us. I I honestly believe that. There's a larger problem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Go on. About on. about the commodification of dissent and about the commodification <laughs> of radical ideas and how eventually those ideas get defanged and co-opted and serve the dominant paradigm. But that's another discussion. Yes, we might be on other opposite sides of the fence on that one. Yeah. <laughs> 
indeed. Because <laughs> I'm like, uh, I, I agree with you, and I think, yeah, that's a good thing. But that's a yeah. whole separate conversation. It yes. is a whole separate conversation, which yeah. maybe maybe you and I will have someday. Right. There might be a, a text that would bring it out as a conversation. Excellent. Yes. I would uh, tell listeners, if you are interested in this idea, <laughs> uh, my old friend Tom Frank of The Baffler of What's the Matter with Kansas. With Kansas. Right. His uh, PhD thesis was about it. I actually, huh. we shared the same advisor back in the day. And so I got to hear him, <laughs> I got to hear this idea come along. It was, and I, I remember being blown away by the idea, like when I was first introduced to it, like, because <laughs> I was a little punk rocker and I knew I resented, like when my band played stadiums, right? Like my favorite mm-hmm. band got big. I knew there was something about it that like bothered me. Tom so you gave only like the early work, yes. Yeah, Tom gave me a, the reasons. <laughs> That's a little bit of a joke. Anyway, he's written a lot about this, his early work especially. His first book is called Commodify Your Descent, and the Mm. first chapter is The Rebel Consumer. And I went and dipped into it this morning, and I was like, oh, fuck, this is still really relevant. (laughs) So. Fair enough. All right. Dan. Ting, 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 ting. What is that? I I believe, Anna, it is the debris field. We are about to talk about the things we didn't get a chance to talk about earlier. Yes. Dan, what do you got? Uh, I got a couple things. First, at the start of the book, maybe this is a little weird. Anna, I'm curious. Where did you think the, like, on Earth this book was placed? (laughs) Now that you mention it, yeah, they don't say, huh? And Um, I wasn't sure if, I think it was the United States, but for a long time I couldn't figure out if it was the U.S. or the U.K. Wow. I want to ask Charlie this. Yeah, and that's an interesting sort of comment on our assumptions, right? Yeah. I thought, you know, Kansas. Like, my, when I think America, yeah, yeah. like, I go to the heartland. It, the only reason I say that, I think it has to be America because there's a lot of, like, prom and stuff like that that pretty much is yeah. only happens in the United States. But if you look at the place names, the place names are yep. very UK. Yeah. And so, like, I was, I couldn't figure that one out. And, yeah. and speaking of which, I actually, I hope we see Tina's mom again because I actually really yes. like Tina's mom. And, of course, she disappears after the first 40 pages of the book, which made you sad. But, like, it was, I had to wonder what it was like for her. And also, I think this was something that was unclear, and I want to ask Charlie about this. Did everyone know that Tina was part alien? I assume that was something of a secret, but like it wasn't obvious to me during her time on Earth. Because I'm assuming that in an actual real world, if someone had been like discovered to be part alien, they probably would not have just been going to a normal high school. Yeah, I could say what I think, but I think we will wait. We will wait till we talk to Charlie. Till we talk to Charlie. Fair enough. So a few other things. First of all, the holographic goo for using computers seems weird and not terribly functional. So one of the things you discover is that in order to operate computers and on the Indomitable, you like stick your hands in what seems to be like a viscous substance. And that just seemed really strange and, you know, like even less useful than a BlackBerry. (laughs) At least they're not using keyboard stand. There we go. Fair enough. Yes, that's right. Oh, that's right. (laughs) I forgot. So like, yes, like, but this points out like you hate keyboards. I'm not sure this is any better. I think I would have preferred keyboards to the holographic. I think a gestural interface does make sense for a multilingual crew. I do have this image. It's the gooeyest part that's weird. Yes. I I also have this image now of of Elizabeth Olsen as Scarlet Witch, like using her hands, you know, like that's how you, you have to do it. There are a lot of like small throwaway lines in this novel that actually kind of remind me a little bit of Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's uh, Guide series because they're like just sort of one-off jokes or like one-off 
throwaway things that you're kind of curious about, but they don't don't get explored further. And I want to ask Charlie about this when we talk to her. But I want to know what the Yarthin prayer of not dying is, because that seems like a really <laughs> useful prayer to have, you know, particularly on 21st century Earth. And then finally, I liked a lot of the ship names, particularly the, it was really clever to have the evil enemy be the compassion, you know, just sort of so disingenuously named. And all of the names of the compassion ships actually struck me as really, really funny. And my fave was the Sweet Euthanasia, <laughs> which is just a fantastic name for a ship. I, mean, I wanted to add this earlier, speaking of the yeah. ship names. I am not a huge fan of like action sequences. Right. I know that makes me a little bit, I mean, maybe an outlier in the sci-fi lover genre. Like, I can kind of skip them. When you say you're not a fan of action sequences, do you mean, like, on film or in books? Because, like, those are two different things. Oh, I love them in films. Right, okay. You're talking about when they're dealt with in books. When there's, like, he punched here. Yeah, yeah. He swung his leg here. And also, like, the action sequences of ships, right? Right. Like, he blew things here, and then the ship did a turn. And and I can kind of just skim those, usually. Mm -hmm. Like, kind of, all right, ships fighting, whatever. This book was a little different. Yeah. Like, I was interested in how they were going to win that final battle. Yes. And her description of it was very clear. Mm-hmm. Like, I could, I think usually my problem with those scenes in most books is that I know that the writer has a real clear vision for what this looks like. Right. But usually... It's hard. That, that I think action scenes are some of the hardest things to actually write as opposed to see. And it's why, by the way, I would add, like, you know... There's a reason why Tolkien is considered, like, the master at this. Because, like, his action sequences are genuinely riveting to read. Um, yeah. But, yes. I, I, yeah. Well, I also think the larger the, the combatant, like, mm-hmm. the easier it is to do. So, like, I would say yeah. Game of Thrones is another example. Yeah. Where if you're talking about a battle. Right. And, like, one, you know, a set of soldiers outflanks another. I can picture that. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's the individual, like, hand-to-hand stuff that. Anyway, I, I think she did a great job with yeah. it, and I, I found the final battle sequence genuinely exciting, mm-hmm. which is uh, not always true for the battle scenes that I read. I also really loved, this is this is not, this is a big piece of debris if it's debris. Mm-hmm. I love the twist on the YA trope of being plucked out of nowhere to be a hero. Mm-hmm. like And that sort of just not working out. <laughs> <laughs> It's as if Harry Potter went to wizarding school and they're like, oh, yeah, you're just another. Yeah, you're just I don't know. Well, I think I have to special. I mean, not that there's nothing special about her, but like you are not the fortunate one. You are not our savior. Like we thought you might be. Yeah. But turns out mm, you're just Tina. You're just you. Yeah. Which is great. Don't get us wrong. Right. (laughs) I I will say like this was interesting to me because like I. Anders does a really interesting thing here because when you think, oh, okay, she's about to get her memories liberated and so forth, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I kind of like the character I've been reading about so far. I don't want to see her disappear. So, like, you're actually rooting for this to fail. But at the same time, there was also part of me that kind of wondered, I would have liked to have known more about Tina's interior life about this. Because, like, growing up with the knowledge that you are actually, like, sort of a partial clone of someone else and, you know, will eventually have those memories released and so forth has to be a little daunting there's sort of a total recall element to that and i'm not sure how crazy i am about it i mean i think that there's a little bit about that but Mm -hmm. i think it there's also a slight bit of hand waving in casing it in the ya trope right of like someday i will be called upon to be a hero yes fair enough right yeah it also does turn out that argentian is flawed yes which i also liked a lot that was a good move we find out more about her flaws in the future (laughs) novels 
And this is a very, very piece, small piece of debris. I would have liked to have known more about the food. It is not a small piece of debris. I am with you on this one, Anna. Because well, because she talks about the food a fair amount, but I don't. I feel like I don't understand it. Like yeah, I don't. The, it's it's, like, it's it, mentioned enough that you know that they eat different things. Well, there's like one big food scene where they're like trying yeah. stuff, and then the problem is it's kind of left after that. She doesn't yeah, really yeah, yeah. pick up after that. And like I kind of I couldn't figure out is it replicators? Like are you know what are the varieties of of cuisines it would strike me that if you have you know a truly galaxy's worth kinds of of cuisines that you would be able to sample some really interesting things also it does strike me that at least two of the earthling coders would have figured out how to code the things <laughs> to make like a kick-ass curry or a you know a kick-ass afro-brazilian meal. yeah it just also would have been kind of cool like if some other space race like had curry yeah I have heard somewhere that every culture has like a curry of some kind or like every culture. Has, there's some food that food historians say every culture has a form of. I My don't favorite, remember what it is. I, actually, this reminds but me. Wouldn't of, it be funny if like one of those random races was like where it's like curry? Oh, yeah, we love curry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, that actually reminds me of I don't know if you remember this. And I think it's Douglas Adams, uh, the middle one, uh, the restaurant at the end of the universe. One of the things that, that they discover is that in every planet in the galaxy, there is a liquid drink called gin and tonics. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I, we should ask her about the Douglas Adams connection, because as soon as yes. you said that, I, I also had the thought every once in a while that this this reads a lot like a Douglas Adams novel. Right, exactly. Like it has the same spirit to it, definitely. Yes, yes that's true. All right, so I think we've gone over what we can go over and what we have left to go over in this book. We can talk to Charlie about. I am super excited to talk to her. Everyone, mm -hmm. download that. It'll be a great bonus episode. I'd also just like to say, Dan, yes. uh, happy Ted Lasso season to those who celebrate it. Thank you, Anna. And you know what we should do in honor of that? Do you have an idea, Dan? I do indeed. So both Anna and I are such huge fans of Ted Lasso season one. And we are so looking forward to Ted Lasso season two that we are going to add a Ted Lasso component to Space the Nation. In all of our episodes, we are at the very Moving end. Moving forward for as long as the season lasts. Right. And we will do this at the end of every episode because we understand that not everyone is necessarily a fan of Ted Lasso or maybe you're behind and therefore don't want to be caught up on plot points. We will do this at the end after the debris field in all of our podcasts. But we both really liked this show. And I think it would be safe to say this show lifted our spirits for both of us at times mm -hmm. when we were feeling pretty down. And so we felt like it doesn't matter if it's not about science fiction or international relations. Fuck it. We both love this show. This show is goddamn awesome. And we are going to celebrate it on this podcast. We don't know what shape these recaps will take exactly. Mm -hmm. I do want to let people know it's not going to be another hour of the show. Yes, that is absolutely it's correct. It's going to be a mini recap. Um, Five as much to as we minutes. love the show, I yeah. probably could talk about it for an hour. <laughs> we're not going to do that to you, dear listener. And we're very excited about it. I think both Dan and I, uh, we've been doing this. God, Dan, we've been doing this for like the better part of a year. Can we you have. believe it? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That is kind of cool. And we're both enjoying ways to spice it up, basically. <laughs> yes. I hope to do another surprise episode on some random piece of trashy sci-fi. Uh, but we have a lot of fun things coming up, too. Uh, Hot Sci-Fi Summer for us mm -hmm. is about fun, uplifting stuff. Yes. Like, we did a series, as you know, dear listener, if you've been following, <laughs> <laughs> we did a run of books and movies that were... Intense. Yeah. Dark. <laughs> Yeah. And so, good. They were all good, oh, to yeah. be very clear. But, yeah. like, 
We want for the summer at least to, you know, have, a, you know, journey onto the lighter side of sci-fi. And, and, and Ted Lasso is part of that. Yes. Other fun stuff we have coming up includes Buckaroo Banzai. A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. And Reign of Fire. We are super excited about that. I haven't seen it in a long time. Same. My memory of it is it's it's a so bad it's good thing. My memory of it is true gonzo, yes. So, like, I will yeah. be curious to see how we, we react to it. If you're enjoying the show, you might consider becoming a patron. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dan, you want to say why they should become a patron? There are so many reasons. You know, you get early access to episodes. There is some free merch involved. Most important, you get access to our monthly AMAs, as well as a Discord channel that is very lively and likes to pick on me. So if you want to pick on me and you want multiple <laughs> venues to do this, you should absolutely become a patron. Uh, you can become a patron for as little as $3 a month. You can go to patreon.com slash space the nation to join. And we are still using that money to pay Karen so mm -hmm. that she can take care of her new puppy. Not so new anymore, but we've been enjoying watching him grow. Alwyn. Have we posted pics of Alwyn to the Discord and to Patreon? I have. Okay. I will demand more from Karen. Good. All right. Maybe I'll, I should put it in the job description, really. There you go. But then she might bill us for it, so... <laughs> I'll just ask her for some more pictures. Uh, okay. th which, speaking of which, we have an Adorables channel on mm -hmm. the Discord. Like, people do post pictures of their pets in the Discord. It's a fucking great Discord. I can't believe Dan isn't there. I'm there on occasion, like, and I might lurk, <laughs> you know, and go there. In fact, I've got an Adorables picture that I could add. I will, in fact, I might add it right after recording this. In fact. All right, there you go. Yeah. And until then, Dan. Keep this channel open for more. <laughs>